Hey, this is Michael Gilbert from Flossum and Jetsum, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal. And up front, you did hear from Michael Gilbert from Flotsam and Jetsam, but no, we don't have Flots on the show today. I use that because the guy we do have on the show today, Richie, is talking to from Phoenix, Arizona, and that would be Danny Zalisco. And I hear you out there going, who the hell is Danny Zalisco? Well, let me tell you, Danny Zalisco is a legendary concert promoter. And he just recently put out a book called All Excess, Occupation, Concert Promoter. And over the course of the next two episodes, you are going to hear the chat that Richie had with Danny about all kinds of stuff. And and why over two episodes? Because, you know, really, this fits into the ethos of what Focus on Metal is all about, which is really about couple of people just sitting down shooting the shit about music and that's essentially what happens when uh, richie got on the phone with danny for well over two hours uh just a few weeks ago and since we have so much to pack in over the next two weeks we're going to turn it over to uh, richie and our guest legendary concert promoter danny zalisco is that danny So, Danny, I've read the book. I really enjoyed it. You're the first promoter I've had on the show, so I've got a lot of questions. Oh, great. When I was going to concerts in Ireland, the big promoters there were MCD and and Jim Aiken. And I'm I'm just wondering, did you network a lot with promoters outside of the U.S.? I'm afraid not. I, I, I know several from around the globe, but no. There's really, there's never that much reason for me, business wise, to do anything because I'm a promoter, not a manager. I wouldn't know how to promote over there. Yeah. But I mean, if I had a band that I could tour with and go around the world, I would be calling on, you know, whoever the best guys were to do it with me because I would never pretend to think I could do that by myself. Mm. Do you think that they promote things outside the U.S. differently, that some methods that they use wouldn't really fly in the U.S. at all? You know, um, the only way I could tell you an answer to that would be if I went over there and observed them and, and saw what they were doing and actually jammed with them about, you know, promoting a show. Uh, I, I imagine that anymore, you know, things are pretty much the same across the board. But when I've been to England or, or Ireland, I mean, I've noticed uh, they're, they're, they're still very heavy with posters and, and still very heavy with, you know, just putting the word out. Uh, on the streets that somebody's coming to town. And I know they're also doing the social media and all that, but beyond that, uh, I, the, the biggest difference between me and, and the UK promoters, for instance, all over Europe is, is that they mastered the art of postering. Okay. The undergrounds, buses, you name it. I mean, how about when you're coming out of the underground and there's that whole wall going up five stories and it's got every show and every play and everything, you know, uh, as a giant poster there. And that's, people spend a lot of money doing that. Yeah, that's true. Was there one thing in the book, one aspect of promoting that you wanted to emphasize that you don't think is widely known or, or is misunderstood by people? I would say that 
a lot of people don't know what a promoter is or does. And when they do decide to use the word promoter, they use it in vain, the same way that the acts do. Oh, that effing promoter. (laughs) You know, oh, that effing. He's the one that's charging so much for these tickets. That's the one I love the best. That's my fault. When in reality, every show starts with what the headliner gets or wants, right? Mm -hmm. And then depending on the hall, your costs are going to be so much, you know, to rent the place and staffing charges change from place to place. But the bottom line is the band always has a fee and you have to pay that fee whether five people show up or 10,000 people show up. Same with all the costs and all the catering for the band and the advertising for the show and the stage hands and the security. Everybody you see at the theater that night, I've got to pay for and hopefully there's enough to cover everything and then at the end of the show and at the end of counting everything, whatever's left over is mine. Hmm. Now, the one thing I definitely notice, and I've had a lot of people say to me, and all you got to do is look on social media on the band's sites. When they start announcing dates, all of a sudden, all the comments will come in, play this town, play this town, play this town. And I always look at that and I think the band doesn't decide where they're going to play. You need to be contacting the promoter to book the band to come to your town. And I, I always wanted to ask a promoter over the years, did you get a lot of mail and a lot of people asking you to book bands? Uh, yes, and I still do. Okay, so lo- um, so a lot know, of a lot of people get it then. A lot of people do get it, and the other thing is, you know, with social media anymore, I mean, it's like there's so much wishful thinking going on there all the time about every possible thing. Anyway, because people who are on there aren't business people; they don't know what they're asking or what's going to happen as a result, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bottom line is, is it, it's just people blowing off a little steam saying, why don't you come to town? Now, if, if I'm a good promoter or if they have a good person on their band site, they can still take that back, not necessarily to the band, but to management. I mean, that's what the manager should be doing is, you know, they need to know that stuff before I do. They should know where they need to go or where the where the most fans are. Now, for the most part, with a tour of America, for example, you could tour here all year long and not play the same place twice unless you really want to. There's enough places in the 50 states that can keep you busy for a week or two or three, depending on how big you are, every year. So here's the thing about promoters. People don't know you can talk to them or that you can write to them or that you can contact them to ask them about things like this. But I, I've developed that in my own little neighborhood here in Phoenix, where people, um, for the most part, I think, feel like they can ask me anything. I mean, I'm, I'm very visible. I'm on social media. I've been here for over 40 years, so they know, I'm not too hard to find, I don't think. And, and people ask me all the time about that kind of stuff. People in the smaller towns, you know, they get very frustrated when they get passed over when people don't come directly to their town, I don't blame them, but you know, that's the breaks. If you live in a town that has 50,000 people and there's five other cities within three or 400 miles of you that have a hundred thousand or 500,000 people, guess where they're going to play? Yeah. Where they can, where they can make the most money. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, I don't want to make it sound like everybody's a pig and that's all that it's all about. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to pay bills as a band member or a manager, just like everybody else. And you're always looking out for the best situation for your act. Now, 
the smartest managers and the smartest promoters, you know, won't kill the audience by overcharging them. I mean, I try my best whenever I'm doing shows, you know, to suggest lower ticket prices than what I know is going to be acceptable. But I want to be, I want to start there. I want to, I want to start at like, what do I think is fair knowing what I know compared to other similar type of shows that are coming to town? I mean, is this guy 75 bucks for real or is he really a $40 ad? You know, yeah. and, and you want to, you want to figure that out before you make your deal with the band and prove to them. I mean, it's, it's a lot of statistics, you know, in booking anymore where there's a lot of information available to you of, you know, how bands have done in other dates and other places and other states and other countries, whatever. And you got to read that stuff and you got to pay attention to it. You, you just can't fly by the seat of your pants or, you, you know, you're, if you're wrong by a thousand tickets, you could lose a lot of money. Hmm. Do you still ever book a show just having a gut feeling? All the time. You still do it all the time. Yeah. All the time. I mean, you know, what happens is your research tells you X amount of people are going to show up at a certain ticket price, depending on the night of the week it is and depending on what venue it is. Okay. So if it's a Monday, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, beginning of the week, not always the best night for concerts. But when you think about it, if you started early enough, I mean, I think pretty soon, because all of our acts are aging just like I am, I think what's going to happen one day is I'm going to start telling people what time they'll be home by instead of what time the show starts. You know, because before, when I was a kid and I was going to shows and then putting on shows, you know, we would never get a show done by 11 o'clock. I mean, it'd be more like 11, 30, 12, sometimes later. And and as time went on and all of us started getting older, you know, it's it's like even on a Saturday night, it's like on a Saturday night, you know, time having that dinner before the show, perhaps or go visit somewhere and hang out and have drinks or whatever with friends and get to the show. And you don't care because you don't have to work the next day. But nowadays, everybody works such strange days and strange hours and does so many different things. I mean, in the old days, people would take time off ahead of time so they'd go to a show and get totally hammered and not have to deal with it the next day. Hmm. Nowadays, people aren't acting out as much as they used to. They just aren't. Hmm. Um, a lot of them wised up. A lot of them figured out they weren't good candidates for a grave yet. And, you know, they calmed down a little bit. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, nowadays it's like, you know, with, with the acts that I've grown up with and the people who are in my age group, I think if they could, they'd like the show to start at five and be done by eight. <laughs> well, I, I've got a venue half an hour up the street from me and it's privately owned and uh-huh. they'll have the shows at eight. And that means that the act is on at 8 o'clock. And I, I'll be home by 10.30, and I love it. Well, you know, and, and that's pretty much the way it goes. I mean, I, I have a lot of shows that'll start now at 7 or 7.30, especially on a weeknight, because, you know, you got to assume that a lot of people who are out during the week are workers, and depending on the, you know, the band, you got to figure that out, too, so... You know, you, you, you never know. It's not an exact science. It, and it also depends on how hot your band is or how hot your show is. If it's a stiff, it's a stiff. It doesn't matter if it's Saturday night in your living room. Yeah. You know, but if, if you got a good act and, and, and you don't have to charge too much for the tickets and you don't have to do too many to break even, you can have a fun time. Hmm. So, Danny, what was the show 
that you think you cracked it, the promoting gig, that you said, right, I am pretty good at this, or are you always still learning? Well, in the 70s, when I, I started promoting in the 70s, and I got involved with this club called Dooley's here in Tempe in uh, the end of 76, I started with them. And they paid me a whopping $80 a week. And plus, I got the agency commission. So I ended up making 250 300 a week, which wasn't ridiculously bad. I mean, it sounds like awful right now, but in, in 76, you know, you could live on a grand a month. I mean, my rent was 100 bucks, So, I mean, that's okay. You know, I, I thought I was good at the beginning, but I didn't get good until I was at Dooley's. And, and, and at the very beginning, at the very beginning of when I got there and started doing shows, so that would have been at the end of 76, they hired me, I think it was in November, and I told them I wanted to do Taj Mahal, and the date would be in late January of 77. And the owner of the club was very, very white, and he didn't know what a Taj Mahal was, and I showed him a picture of him, and it scared him. He goes, why don't you do that one? <laughs> so... I said, are you kidding? I said, he's, he's great. People love him here. They play him on the radio and everything. You know, that was in the days when they, you know, used to play really good music on the radio. Uh-huh. You know, that's another story. But, um, so I did Taj. She was $3,000 for two shows in a 700-seater. And I came close to selling both of them out. And I made more money on that show than I had made, I think, in my career. Wow. <laughs> to that point. Up there. So that means I, I hadn't made a whole lot of money to begin with, but it was a couple $3,000 that I ended up making, and, and it was like a fortune to me. It was a godsend. You know, I mean, when you're making 80 bucks a week with somebody, and suddenly you're making two or three grand at one whack, and, and this was, uh, how old was I? 22? Wow. Uh, it was a great time for me, and it was the beginning of the great things that followed, which was... I discovered that uh, this guy didn't have a real serious diet of uh, risk. He didn't like risk, so he stayed away from that. And so I, I found that I could do more shows like that, which was good, and, and do those on my own. And then I booked the shows for him. And after a year of this, he said, uh, why don't you just book the shows from now on, and we'll take the bar, and we'll take care of this, that, and the other thing, and paid for things from their end. So that's, that was really how the whole Evening Star Productions thing took off in 77. 78 was when I, when I was the master of my own destiny and I didn't make money for somebody else. Okay. So I really, I really liked doing it that way. And throughout the rest of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, I just kicked major ass. Hmm. Now, the one thing that definitely comes across in the book is you're a, a massive music fan. But yeah. is it difficult to take the fan hat off? And you yeah, know, look yeah, at you, look, you. You have to, yeah. So you have to look at it analytically because you might love an artist, but the research will say you mightn't make money on it. So you have to take the fan hat off every single time. So here, here is my philosophy, and I think you'll like it. You you have to get to the point in your market, and I don't care if you're in a market of twenty five thousand people or two hundred fifty thousand or twenty five million. You have to know your market, and know how many people are going to show up, at least approximately. It's easier to do shows in smaller markets than the bigger markets because you don't have as much competition. So it's nice to be in a smaller market when you're kind of by yourself and you're tucked away 
and all the big boys can kick their own butts from here to doomsday in the big cities. And you, you just kind of, I say, stay away from that. I mean, people ask me all the time, should I become a promoter? If you can be in a promoter in a city with a great venue by yourself, yeah. But as soon as you get into somebody else's market who's been there for a while, you're going to be competing with them and you're going to drive the prices up or they're going to drive them up on you. The main thing is, is that if you're doing shows of all sizes from the, a 50-seat nightclub to a 5,000-seat auditorium to a 10,000-seat arena, as long as you're controlling most of the action in that town, which is what you need to do ultimately if you're really going to be good at being a promoter, is you take the bands that are new or the ones that are struggling, the ones that are having a harder time selling, you take and you do those shows and you take the hit like a big boy. Huh. And and you go and you, because you want to be that agent's guy. What are, you know, there's, there's a hundred agents out there selling rock bands and different kinds of groups. And you want to be as good of friends with them as possible so that you're getting the first phone call every time that a show comes through your market or the date or the places that you put on shows. If you can do that, you're going to be expected to take one for the team every now and then. Maybe sometimes more. It depends on the on the individual agent and how they how they handle things. But that was how I was able to get dominant in my market. And I don't know any other way. You've got to work with everybody. So the bottom line is, the long-winded answer to your question, is you have to end up doing a lot of shows that you don't initially care for or maybe it's not your cup of tea music-wise, but you find out in working with them that they're a professional outfit and they're good people to know and good people to work with, and then you end up having the show day with them and you have a great day, and you find out at the show you actually like this band, which has happened to me, I can't tell you how many times. Because mm. you don't get, I mean, the only audition we ever get from anybody is the records, and, and if they get played on the radio and all the rest of that. We used to have these things called videos, which it could also help us out, but they don't have those so much anymore. Hmm. Uh, don't, don't know why, but they don't. But, uh, you know, it, it's important to be a big music fan, and it's even more satisfying when you love somebody, and then you meet them for the first time, and you're putting your show on, and you're in business together, and you make money, and they make money, and everybody walks away hugging and kissing, saying, I can't wait to see you again. Hmm. That's what you want. But there's some times where instead of 500 people, which would sell out a nightclub, that you did a favor and said, okay, I'll take your act on a leap of faith, and you do 200 people and you lose a few grand, you better hope they were great and you better hope you did a good job promoting it because you're going to want them back the next time. Because what will happen the next time after you break the ice with them the first time is somebody else is liable to pick them up after all your hard work and money loss and make money with them because it takes one, two, three times sometimes in a market for somebody to get big enough to, you know, be important. Hmm. Danny, in, in the beginning of the book, you talk about starting down the promoting route, but you did help bands like in, in the beginning, like lump their gear around and all that. Why did you not go down the roadie route where you could go on the road with the bands? Why did you want to go into the promoting aspect of it? Well, it, you know, at first, uh, I didn't know what my options were. I didn't really have options. But at first, I tried to get on with in San Francisco with Bill Graham, you know, working for him in, in whatever capacity I could be of aid to. But at that time, I was so young and green, I didn't even know what I could do or should do as a promoter or somebody working for a promoter. 
And you have to be able to have that privilege of, of being around them long enough where you can learn stuff from them and, and figure out what you like doing. Like, do you like advertising? Do you like marketing? Do you like doing accounting uh, or box office? Or would you rather be the guy who organizes the show, the production manager? There's a lot of different roles that are involved with putting on concerts, but lay people such as myself before I started doing this, all I knew was I wanted to be around this action and I wanted to be involved. You don't even know what job to ask for because you're not trained in anything. Yeah. Now, the best training you can have for any job, especially in the music business, is you want to be the one there with common sense because a lot of people that you, you know, get, get with don't always have that. They're out on the road for six months at a time. They're living out of suitcases or a bus or flying around and they go crazy. <laughs> and suddenly, suddenly logic and all that kind of stuff just escape them. And, and you're dealing with wounded veterans. <laughs> and and, and it's, it, it, it can be tricky and it can be funny. But for the most part, nowadays, most of the bands that we're familiar with have been around for a while. They've done a lot of shows. They're not new at this. And they know what kind of a day they like to have. And you know what kind of a day you like to have. And almost every show, and I'm saying, I, I don't even mean more than nine times out of 10, like 9.8 times out of 10, the show is going to go off without a hitch. Nobody's sick. Nobody's stoned. Nobody's messed up. Nobody's weird. There's no fights backstage. There's no gunshots backstage. And you have a great show. <laughs> mm. It's not like it was. I mean, you know, people had no experience in the 60s and the 70s at doing this. Everybody was young. Most people had little to no experience in going around the world and being worldly. Now they're worldly. Now they know better. And, you know, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s don't act up anywhere near the way the 20 and 30-year-olds do. Yeah. Danny, I'm reading a book, and you're getting into the promote the promoting of, of bands. And I'm thinking contracts and all the legal stuff that goes into them. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. how well versed were you in all of that in the beginning, if at all? Not at all. And again, common sense comes into the picture. You you learn by reading. You learn by asking questions. You learn by asking questions in such a way that you don't sound like a complete idiot, but that you just want to do the right thing, as opposed to pretending you know what you're talking about and doing the wrong thing. I don't know anybody that minds people asking questions so they can do a better job for you. Like, for instance, how about this one? I think I wrote about it. I can't remember. My first show in Tucson was the Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin. I didn't realize, even though I knew it wasn't the same band that I'd seen previously with Jan Hammer and Billy Cobham and, and that band, I knew it was a different band. I knew it was a different tour and a different album, but I didn't know they had 23 people on stage at the show. So these are the kind of questions as a promoter you got to know so you know how to budget stagehands and how many people and how much you're going to budget for catering because you got to feed the band, you got to feed the crew. I probably figure, all right, it's going to be five people in the band and a couple of crew guys. That's 40 people I had to feed. <laughs> you know, and this is a new guy. I'm, I, I'm not a caterer. I don't know anything about food. I'm, it's 1974. I'm 19 years old. I've barely been out to a dinner in a nice restaurant before. <laughs> you know, and I'm, sit- and I'm sitting here buying breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 people. So needless to say, that uh, it was an eye-opening experience. But as you go along and you go through time, and these requests that they have for you, certain types of food or certain drinks or 
certain things they want you to get for them in advance backstage, whatever that might be. You know, at, at a certain point, it's them paying for the largest part of that rather than you. You're the host. You're arranging their party for them. That's the way you kind of got to look at it. Yeah. And at the end of that night, though, you know, you're not going to last putting on these parties very long if you're wrong with how much you pay them and how much you spend on stuff like that. You know, the the whole rider thing and the whole requesting or demands that, that artists have have been overblown for decades. And, and nowadays, I mean, it's like any other business that you're in. There, there are certain peculiarities that you have to put up with and deal with in order to make the show successful until they want to come back and see you again. Hmm. And by pretty much, you know, they know by being out on the road as much as they are, what they need on a daily basis. They learn and, and, and that backstage becomes their home, which is why sometimes, you know, people go, wow, God, I got backstage and I couldn't get to see anybody or he was so mean. He didn't want to talk to me. Well, that's his home and you just invaded it without being invited. <laughs> yeah. That's how that works. That's what that is back there. That's, that's their living room, and that catering room is their kitchen, you know, and the practice room is their jam room and so forth. And there is an order of how all of this works. And the whole key to that is that you don't want anybody to know there's any organization or order to it at all. You you want everybody to think whatever they want to think about what happens backstage at a concert. Because their imaginations are wilder than anything I've ever done. Hmm. I've been doing the show I've been backstage now at, at, at a lot of concerts and people glamorize it and it's not really glamorous at all it's like a place to eat a place to maybe have a nap a place to practice and a lot of the arenas are exactly the same well yeah and and the the, the thing is though is, is is what I like about it is if you're back there during the show the best part of that is you clearly belong yeah you're there before a reason you're not there to be a hanger-on or a poser, uh, you know, and just to get in people's way and ask a bunch of stupid questions and can I have your autograph and give me your shirt and, and all the rest of that stuff, as opposed to you're back there for a reason, you're doing whatever it is you're back there to do. I mean, my favorite part about backstage during a show is I got a quiet place to use the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I have my own little cheese tray. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe maybe I have my own bottle of wine or a beer or something like that, or I can have a couple of friends back to sit around and BS during the show. If you know, if I've seen it a million times or if I don't like them. Yeah, you nice, know? nice. Uh, and yeah. Danny, the place in the U.S. now where you put concerts on, I'm curious to know what's the hottest outdoor concert you've ever done, like temperature wise. <laughs> okay. I'm trying, you know, that's, that's the first time anybody's asked me that. I mean, I did outdoor concerts. I still do them once in a while, but, but not as often as I used to. Um, in, in, um, in the eighties, I started doing shows at a place called the Mesa Amphitheater, which is a beautiful terrace. The amphitheater holds about four or 5,000 in, in Mesa. And I, I've been there where I know my face literally melted off. It's 110, 115 oh. degrees. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you're you're like standing on the face of the sun. And, of course, in the summer, the sun doesn't go down here till about 8.30. And in Mesa, which the terrible part is about Mesa, is the theater is an outdoor theater in a neighborhood, and the curfew's 10 o'clock. So whoever has the bad luck of being the opening band at that place is playing in direct sunlight with no light. 
So you look normal and like a regular person who just walked in off the street, which is not what this, which is why they have lights on the stage to make you look bigger and better than anybody else there. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Um, and, and the most it's ever been when I've been here is 121. But I, don't, I didn't have a show that day, but I do remember. <laughs> I do remember, I, I swear to God, I cracked an egg on a tile sidewalk. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, oh, the big concert. I, I, didn't, eat, I didn't eat it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you, had, you had your cheese backstage. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Danny, a lot of the big shows now... As fans, we're getting to find out about them maybe six months beforehand. For the we, we find out about Christmas time for shows that happen in the summer. How far ahead of that are you finding out about these shows? Would it be a year before? No, I, I would say for for the shows that I'm doing I, now. Again, you have to realize something. I, I I I was part of Live Nation for the first five years that they were in business. But I wasn't an investor. I wasn't at risk. I was I was working for them. And that's where I ended up for five years before we both said enough and parted ways. And now, in the last 10 years since then, I do a lot of my favorite acts. Uh, the, my steady guys uh, that I do a lot of shows are like um, Dave Mason, Jackson Brown, Hanky Valley, Alan Parsons, Roger Hodgson, um, there, there's so, so many other names. At any rate, those, those are some of them. And, and I'll try to get multiple dates with them, you know, rather than than try to uh, just do one show here in Phoenix because I can't live on just one show with anybody. But I also need those bigger shows. But there's people out there with deeper pockets than me, one of which I used to work for. And, and you know, they've built up a fantastic business. And their job is to have world domination and do every show that comes out. That's just what they do. Just like any big corporation, that's what they do. Fortunately for me, I'm still not only viable, but relevant in that sense, in that I do most of my shows are anywhere between 700 tickets and 5,000. Uh, and, and, and for me, that's a real comfortable place to be in because that means all of the halls, or pretty much all the halls that I do, are of a, a smaller, more intimate nature, and, and people can actually hear and see the band. And people in, in our, you know, in our age group, any, anybody over 40, that's the age group, anybody over 40 doesn't want to stand for five hours. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah. even if they don't mind standing, I want to have a place to throw my coat. Don't you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, but that's just something that comes with now it's 15, 20, 25. I don't really much care about that. You know, because you're busy, you know, you're busy socializing at the show and running around as, you know, just as a fan and, and making as much time and connections and fun and networking that you could with whoever you run into with these things. I mean, it's great, you know, the fun you have at concerts. That's why they're still so popular. You know, where else are you going to get people who basically like the same kind of music that you do all in the same room at once? Focus! Yeah, yeah. Your odds, in, your odds increase of new friendships. Hmm. Spe speaking of friendships, Danny, the one thing that definitely comes across in the book is that you try and be friendly and and you become friends with the artists themselves. The, the book is full of pictures 
of all these mega stars and some guys that maybe aren't so big but they're very important for you over the years that you built up a relationship with them that's mm-hmm. something that you wanted to do from from the very beginning and I think a lot of that came from when you met all the baseball players and the football players when you were a kid that you wanted to get to know them absolutely true the thing that occurred to me at a really young age like really young early 60s was how lonely some of these people must be because even as a young a young kid i learned about and paid attention like i i read the paper a very early age and i and i I, I always was a little bit older than most of the people my age. My brothers, two older brothers than me, and my parents. I mean, they, and they didn't talk to me like a little kid. So I learned stuff at the very beginning um, uh, of what was uh, what was good and, and what was bad in, in terms of how you behave around people. And I found with the sports people who have those, you know, kind of mighty kind of personas and images, and they're huge and all that. I mean, they were all the nicest people in the world. And it, and it occurred to me at a very young age that, that these people need somebody to talk to and to be friends with and maybe even do work with. As I found out later, there's more to these people than running up and down a field or hitting a bat or, or singing a song. And it turned out that was true. Not everybody, when you're doing shows, you're not going to be friends with everybody. In some cases, you might not even meet the guy who you've been throwing down for in public for the last two months before the show to try to sell tickets. That happens. You're not going to become friends or, or close with everybody that comes in there. And to me, that's their loss because you're on tour. You're coming to my town. I can show you a good time, any kind of time you want. You can come over and hang out here and we can watch TV. We go out to a great restaurant. We go to a club, whatever you want. I can open the town up for you. And if you don't want to do that, I respect that. And there's a lot of people who come in, people that I know. And, and they'll go, you know, I know we're, we're off tonight. I'd really like to see you, but I'm, we're going we're gonna to keep it quiet tonight. And as people grow up, they know when to pick their spots and, and to go out and rage. And, and I'm no stranger to a good rage, and I like doing it. But I don't like doing it every day, huh. every other day. <laughs> Maybe every other day. How about once a week? And then it, and then it goes further from there. But, uh, you know, I I don't necessarily go into any show thinking I'm going to become friends with somebody. I just do. Mm. You know, I mean, if, if they're cool and, and the uh, opportunity presents itself, you know, then we have a great time. It's like, you know, come down a little bit earlier, catch them during sound check and, 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 and make sure that everything is good. I mean, for the most part, a production manager will take care of all that stuff and you can show up and be the big shooter later on. I like showing up earlier and letting them know that I'm there, and if there's a problem, then you're there, as opposed to them trying to find you, which has happened a million times, even if it's a small problem. They like to know you're there. Hmm. And showing up and being present is always a great quality. Yeah. Because I do a metal show, Danny, I'll ask you a few about some of the metal artists that you have in the book. But Please do, my favorites. I, I do want to ask, was there ever an artist where you were told that he could be difficult, but when you actually met him, he wasn't difficult at all like that. That his, his persona surprised you from what you were told beforehand. Okay, here's a good one. John Mellencamp. And I'm, I'm, while I'm saying this one, I'm going to try to think of somebody metal for you, but Mellencamp was a, a great example of what you just said. You know, his name as a producer on the back of his album says The Little Bastard. You know that, right? Yeah. That's him. 
he was called the little bastard for so long, he started referring to himself as that. <laughs> okay? Yeah. There's a reason. <laughs> he is. You know, I, I think he's one of the most gifted, genius songwriters ever, without fail, without question. But I heard he was difficult. So I had two shows with him. By the way, this was when he was still called Johnny Cougar. He was signed, I think, to David Bowie's main man label. I heard a great story about this the other day. He he made a deal. They they wouldn't sign him. He could not get signed. How's that? John Mellencamp. So for all the people out there who want to get signed or believe they got something to share with the world, John Mellencamp couldn't get signed any faster than the Beatles. I mean, they all got turned down. Everybody gets turned down. Nobody's got a crystal ball. I booked Mellencamp for Phoenix and Tucson in, in Dooley's, in the nightclubs. There was a nightclub of Dooley's in Tucson and in Phoenix. First night's the larger room in Dooley's, and I charged a dollar ninety-three to coincide with the radio station because it was a brand new artist. He didn't have a song on the radio yet. Pat Benatar was already charting with "I Need a Lover" that he wrote, right? Uh huh. So he comes in. I meet him. I'm there when he shows up. Shake hands. How you doing? How you doing? Everybody's great, and the show goes off without a hitch. Packed. Two dollars a ticket. Packed, and it was. Mayhem. He he was just out of his mind. And after the show, he's hugging me. God, Danny, thanks for having me. And I'm going, why does everybody call you names? He looks at me like, they do. And he laughs. He goes, I know, I'm a prick. <laughs> so the next night, we're in Tucson. And Tucson has a much smaller place. It's 400. And we've only sold 250 tickets. And I charged $1.92 down there for the radio station call letters. We only sold 200 tickets. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I'm growing with this guy. And it's from one of my main agents. So this is one of those shows you do to try to help build a career on the way up. Yeah. So you're there with them when they get to 2,000 seats and 10,000 seats, right? Which I was, by the way, with him. But there's a little bump along the way. So we're in this club. It's an old church re- redundant nightclub. And he came in during the day and goes, wow, this is, this is something. And the stage was different levels, different segments. The sound system wasn't huge. It was only a 400-capacity room. You don't need a PA to fill Shea Stadium, do you, in Tucson, Arizona? You know, you, you just put up what you need to put up. And it, it was a fine room. It was a little bit odd, a little quirky, as it used to be at church. But all I know is I had Spirit in there, and I had Aldi Miola. I had the tubes. I had Muddy Waters. I had Power of Power. And nobody's going to give me shit after that. Yeah, not with that quality of people playing there. So Mellencamp comes in and he goes, all right, we'll make it work. And I go, great. He goes off somewhere. He went out to get a hamburger or something. He comes back. They do the show. First song, knocks it out of the park. Don't remember what it was. In between, he's going to go into the second song. He goes, you know, just because I'm a new guy doesn't mean you should put me on a card table for a stage. (laughs) 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 Yeah, He didn't stop there. And he goes, I got a better PA in my car. And then, he, and then he points at me. I'm about 20 feet away. Go get your money back from that SOB right now. Those what? are fighting words where I come from. Oh, yeah. So I, I started to run at him from my 20 feet away. And, and I had two extremely large security guys that I employed to make sure nobody ever got to the stage. And I told them no one <laughs> ever gets on the stage. <laughs> and they said, sorry, boss, your rule. You can't go up there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and thank God they did that because I would have killed them. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think I could have taken him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he remembers that story or not. I'm dying to ask him but because now in the, in the book, I was going to add the letter. And you know what? I chickened out. I honestly chickened out because it was a nice letter. It's a fine letter. I wrote a letter to his manager afterwards saying, look, when this guy gets to be somebody, he can sell some tickets. I'll get him anything he wants. But he didn't even sell 300 tickets at a buck 92. And he's bitching at me. Yeah. Come on. Grow <laughs> up. <laughs> but yeah. that's the common sense thing I'm talking about. Yeah. There isn't some. Sometimes, I mean, even before they're big, even before they're rich, that's all the more reason to go nuts because I guess he's thinking he's being true to himself. He should have the same equipment that Paul McCartney should have. Not. Hmm. Not really. Yeah. You know, I, I'll never forget this one. Lindsey Buckingham of Sound, Mind, and Body. You know, the guy that quit Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Big, yeah. The guy that quit Fleetwood Mac before their biggest tour ever. Smart guy. Right? Mm-hmm. We had a show uh, at a place called the Orpheum here in Phoenix, downtown. Sold 600 out of 1,300 tickets. Lindsey Buckingham, right? It's a total train wreck. Yeah. He comes in with his folks the day of the show. Nice people. And I, I know Lindsey for years from Stevie and doing shows with Fleetwood Mac. And we've done shows together. And we, we always got along fine. But Lindsey's, you know, over the years, I think he, I don't know, he got old or something. Or he developed a loose wire. And he told his production manager that he didn't have enough sound available, PA sound, for the audience in the room. This is a beautiful, austere, gorgeous little theater. I mean, classic, about 100 years old. And he has his PA up, and and my production manager, Nigel's down there, and he tells me about how Lindsay uh, needs some more PA, and and it's going to cost me $2,000 more. I go, Nigel, does he know any tickets are sold? He goes, yep, he don't care. <laughs> I said, tell him to go F himself. Really, that's your answer? I said, 100%. I said, he's not going to listen to your reasoning, so just tell him to piss off. <laughs> he's going to still do the show. He's not going anywhere. And, and I wish he would cancel, right? Yeah. Because if he cancels, he owes me all the money for the show. Yeah. You know, and I'll break even. But that, that wasn't my point. I never, ever did that to anybody. But I should have in this case. <laughs> so I refused him that. I said, tell him if he wants, you know, this extra PA to buy it himself. He's rich. He's Lindsey Buckingham. I'm Danny Zalisco. Shut up. <laughs> so after the show, I go down to say hello, not thinking about that conversation, right? And he comes out of his dressing and goes, oh, there he is. Son of a bitch, chief promoter. What? So I take a lunge at him. His manager stops me. He goes, were you just going to punch me? I said, Tom, get out of my way. I want to knock him down. (laughs) And there's all these people there. And I go, and I go over to him and I pat him on the shoulder. I go, just kidding, Lindsay, just kidding. I said, I hope I never see you again. (laughs) (laughs) And I walked out. Yeah. And I haven't, and I haven't seen him since. Yeah. And I don't care. It's like, you know, how insensitive with your promoter who you need to stay in business so you can be around the next time he comes through, you know, because I'll take care of him. I'll look after him like he's my own, but not when you talk like that, that's treasonous stuff. Danny, do you you think some, some musicians, some acts, they just take the promoter for granted and feel they can walk all over him. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And and you see it you see in Lindsay's case, and, and it's not all his fault. Here, look at me rolling back. What a jerk. He doesn't know. He thinks because of my relationship with Jess Nick, Stevie's dad, and Stevie, who are from here, and I know from here, I knew them first before I knew him. He thinks that I'm rolling in dough, and anything goes. And I do all the Fleetwood Mac dates, so why wouldn't I humor him? That's basically what the response I got later was, hmm. why he acted that way. Because I asked his manager, who's a great friend of mine, I, I asked him why he was, I said, why would he, come on, Tom, you know me. I love artists. I love music. I'll do anything they need, but I mean, why would a guy that could buy and sell me a hundred times over demand such an unreasonable thing for me without, you know, thinking about it? He goes, he's a rock star, man. He's Lindsey Buckingham. He thinks you're rich off of him. I said, but I don't get that many Fleetwood Mac dates. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like next to none, you know, uh, anyway, I mean, this, this is, uh, this doesn't happen a lot. And I, and I hate to rail on, and somebody is 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 uh, amazing as a musician as Lindsay, but the problem with Lindsay was Lindsay and, and anybody will tell you this. I think maybe I'm wrong. They'll throw me under the bus, but I don't think so. Lindsay does that. You know, you see Fleetwood Mac, right? Yeah. And you know, there's those featured spots in the show that he has where you know he stands out front and he shines and he rocks the place. Uh-huh. And he's as great of a guitar player as you'll ever see. And, and and he's great on stage, great charisma. You know, you can't help but watch Lindsay do one of those Fleetwood Mac songs or that, that area in the, in the show where he does his solo and just rocks the place. He thinks because of that being part of the show that it's his show and everybody came to see him. And the fact is, everybody came to see everybody. Everybody came to see a show. And here's where, where this is proved. Everybody knows who Fleetwood Mac is. It might as well be Fleetwood Knicks. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Because um, without Stevie, there was no Fleetwood Mac. And there's always been a Mick Fleetwood, and people would argue with me about it, but Fleetwood Mac, I mean, without a Stevie Knicks, they had to hire Becca Bramlett, for Christ's sake. I mean, you know, who's a good singer, but not Stevie. But anyway, this is the problem you have with artists who are so talented and so exceptional they think everybody came to see them. And then they go out on their own tour and they think they're going to do 10,000 seats or everybody should treat them like they're still Fleetwood Mac. And it doesn't work like that. You have to, you have to join everybody else in reality with a reality check and go, I'm selling 600 out of 1300. How do I make it easier for this guy to lose money tonight <laughs> instead of harder? Mm. And, and that's just, that's a character flaw which I don't know that he's changed or cured because, you know, that was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. And, and look what he did a couple of years ago. I mean, he allowed, uh, what was it, Neil and Mike uh, to come in and replace him in Fleetwood Mac for that last tour. And, 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 uh, and he didn't go out, which cost him uh, $10 million. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know why that happened? He wanted certain days off because with Fleetwood Mac and Stevie and everybody, they only do two to three shows per week. So he was in a take because Lindsay's in great shape and fine form and everything. And he wants to promote his own solo music. So he wants to have X amount of days off in between Fleetwood Mac dates in order to do Lindsay Buckingham dates. Now one would think, Hmm, which came first, Lindsay or Fleetwood? Well, Fleetwood. Yeah. You do everything around that schedule because 
That's what counts. That's what everybody wants. Now, there's a lot of great big Lindsey Buckingham fans that will go see him. 600 people. (laughs) (laughs) Which there's nothing wrong with. I'm not laughing at somebody doing 600 people. That's a lot of people. You know why I know 600 people is a lot of people? Because I've done shows. I've done shows where if I did 600 people, I would have blown the load. (laughs) (laughs) You you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember I did a a show with Peter Hamill from Vandergraaf Generator once. I love Peter Hamill. I love Vandergraaf. You know the group? Yeah, I do, yeah. And and I wish more more people in America did too, because I sold 99 tickets. I had to buy the extra ticket to call it 100, <laughs> and I did, and I still have the ticket. Mm. But you know what? I, I lost a little bit of money on the show, and, and I didn't care. Peter Hamill's one of the most greatest singers that I've ever heard. I mean, he was one of my prod guys back in the early 70s, and he came to Phoenix. We did a solo show together. He came to my house. We had dinner at my favorite restaurant. It was glorious, and I would do it again in a heartbeat for those 98 people. Mm. D- Danny... Have you ever had musicians come up to you asking serious questions to you about how you promote and why you did it this way? Or, or do they just, yes. do, do, do some of them do, yeah? Sure. You have a lot of bands who have smart people in their bands. Every band seems to have one guy who's connected to the business and knows what's going on. And that allows the other band, the rest of the band, to be freed up to think about music and chicks. right yeah so in in each band like like in tesla you got brian wheat yeah i know brian brian wheat brian wheat is pretty much the manager of tesla um mick jagger is the manager of the stones you know he was the one who always cleared tours in the deals mick had a a degree in accounting mick ain't stupid (laughs) Mm. you know and 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 there's somebody like that in almost every band Somebody who didn't take control but took responsibility, and a lot of bands they they just don't they don't take the responsibility and and but they're musicians they're not businessmen and people expect them you know after a while to behave like that whether they're twenty or forty that isn't what they got into it for they got into it for playing music believe me when I tell you I didn't know that I would still be sitting here talking about promoting concerts at this stage anymore than any of these bands would think they put out 20 records. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the other day, yeah, I got to tell you this one real quick. The other day I was in Maui, and down the street from me, one of my very best friends, Chris Christopherson, lives. And we're over at his house. Me and him are playing with his chihuahua, Pancho. And his wife says, hey, Danny, do you like vinyl? I go, you've been to my house. <laughs> you know I love vinyl. She goes, well, look at this. And she opens up this box. It's got about 100, maybe 200 records in it. And it's 20 Christopherson records, five to 10 copies each, all signed. So I went over to Chris and I said, are you feeling right, buddy? He goes, yeah, why? I go, did your wife, like, chain you to your picnic table here in the kitchen and make you sit down and sign all this stuff? He, a matter of fact, she did. (laughs) It's like I tried to take them all with me. I mean, I have so many friends that love Chris, right? Yeah. And I, I escaped with one copy of each. And I'm looking at them right now. Nice. It's at least it's 20 records, and it's all signed, and they're from his house. That's why I do this. Yeah. <laughs> nice. 
So, Is so, that sweet? Yeah, that's oh, fantastic. So, Danny, I'm going to throw some names at you, some metal guys. I'm going to start off with Ken Hensley, who passed away at the end of last year. Oh, oh, I, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to start with the obvious big names, but I do want to ask you about Ken. Ken, Ken Hensley is one of the biggest names in my life. Okay. Ken, I uh, originally saw with your eye, he's opening for T-Rex in Chicago. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, number one, that they opened for T-Rex. But that's what you have to do when the other band is bigger than you, for whatever reason. Uh The T-Rex never had any reason to be bigger than your eye, (laughs) Deep. And, and they were fantastic. And and uh, I, I met him, oh, God, uh, early 90s. He quit Uriah Heap, and he became a representative for an equipment company called St. Louis Music out of St. Louis. And that's where a lot of a lot of people get their instruments from. Um, and he made he was like the the, the guy the A and R guy for, for an equipment company, and he'd go around signing acts to their equipment list. And uh, he was great at it. My wife and I went over and saw him the year before last, uh, and stayed with him for I don't know we were there for about ten days with him in Spain. Nice. And I just loved him so so much, and and so sad, you know, that that he passed. I, I still don't even know why. And his wife is. Still, such a mess over it, which she should be, and and I'm sad for her. Mm. Tough stuff, tough stuff. What, what a brilliant musician! Have you heard his new record yet? I have. He's brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's a great. Uh, it's his best record, and he's dead. Yeah. Damn it. Mm. Another name, Bronny James Dio. Oh God, you're hitting on my best, Bronny James. We used to call each other this word, uh, you know, the English word of uh, entitlement. You know the word. <laughs> Begins with a C and ends with a T. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and gotcha. And, and, and <laughs> for, for, for me to pick up the phone and hear him and his road manager, Willie Fife, and he call up and they go, you call, you know, uh, my favorite guys in the world. Ronnie, uh, Ronnie and I did amazing business together. Um, I, I did Black Sabbath with him. I did Heaven and Hell with him. And I did Dio dates. I didn't do any Elf dates, but uh, by far my favorite guy. Okay. And um, partying with Motley Crue. Hey, now. Motley Crue partying was great fun. My favorite guy to party with was Tommy. Tommy could always keep it together. I love Nikki. I love them all. Love Vince. Nice people. Sometimes nicer than others. But I, I never, well, I, I never had a real problem with any of them. But uh, I did the first show. Motley did outside of California. And I want to say it was April Fool's Day, 1982. You can look it up. They played the Aladdin Hotel in Vegas. And they were the opening act. I paid them $2,500. They kicked ass. They were fantastic. And the funny part was they had sent me on their own. And and I never could figure out who it was that sent me the tape. And I still have it somewhere. I should find it, I suppose. But I have a tape uh, their demo tape that they were sending out themselves. Okay. Before Doc McGee. And um, <laughs> I never listened to it. <laughs> I listened to, oh, I take it back. I listened to my track. It was awful. It was just horrible. And I, I told them as much. But they came to the show in Vegas. They opened for Kicks. And I'll never forget. I was sitting in the closet, the large closet at the Aladdin Hotel in Vegas on the Strip. Doc McGee, Doug Saylor, the four guys from Molly and Tommy saying to me, well, what do you think, man? Do we got a shot at this? And I said, a shot at what? Getting really high tonight? 
or <laughs> you guys becoming big stars? He goes, well, both. Can't we do both? <laughs> I said, yes, of course. I said, but would you mind laying off this one until you get to that one? <laughs> and then by that time, you can make decisions of your own. The problem is, is these guys get big too fast. Mm. And, you know, who knows? Forget about your rock guy. Who knows what you should do when you're showered with money and fame and affection and all that? Nobody knows. And, and the ones that learn faster than the others are the ones that you're still seeing on stage today. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. And, and somehow, like the Stones, this is the biggest similarity Motley has to them. I mean, Motley's one of the greatest bands ever to come out of America, just like the Stones are for Britain. And they're so mysterious in so many ways and so outrageous in other ways and public about their outrageousness in so many ways. But they got through it. Some bands weren't so lucky, you know, and, and everybody's got a different metabolism and ability to take on whatever it is that they're ingesting. But I'll tell you what, man, Motley Crue can rock. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. I, I, I pray they're not rocking like they used to. Mm. I, I have no idea. I haven't talked to any of them in a couple of years, but I, I love them. And, and I love that part of my life when, uh, when they came along. The 80s were just so fantastic between... The likes of them and um, White Snake, Scorps, Judas. Who else? Who am I missing? Who is Danny missing? Well, stay tuned. Come back here again next week, and you will find out the answer to that and many more questions. And I will say that, you know, you heard a lot of stuff this week, and this dude is just getting started. Have another hour worth of audio. And I, like I said, massive, massive conversation that uh, Danny gave to Richie a few weeks ago. And it's pretty obvious, too, that with the conversation that he could have just kept going on and on for hours. We probably could have had two months worth of audio with uh, everything that, uh, that Danny wanted to talk about. And really, when you think about it, with just what you heard this week, that should give you a pretty decent indication of the kinds of things that you can expect to find in his book, All Excess, Occupation, Concert Promoter. And uh, as I had said in a teaser a few weeks ago, you know, excess is definitely spelled E-X-C-E and then two dollar signs. So lots of stories in that book and also lots of pictures. It's almost like when we talk to him later on next week, you'll find out that a good chunk of the book was really almost designed about his desire to get all of the pictures and stuff out there as well. And he's definitely one of these guys you'll find out next week, too, that really does want to share that rock and roll heritage and share his experiences and all of that as well. Lots of good stuff in store for you next week with stories and all kinds of stuff. But in the meantime, if you do want to pick yourself up a copy of the book, you can go right to his site, which is dzplive.com and click over onto the merch menu. And from there, you can pick up your own copy of All Excess. And, you know, if you like this kind of stuff, well, for one, that's probably one reason you're listening to Focus on Metal. But if you like these kind of uh, deeper dive things as well, just, uh, you know, a thing to go up onto our website at uh, focusonmetalpod.com. And in the episodes thing, there is a section that is just for all of our projects. And so you can do our deep dive into uh, Little Mountain or Kerrang! Magazine or Dio Strange Highways or just, hey, any of the episodes in general. Feel free to go up there. 
browse the site as much as you want. And uh, also, the search feature is also there. So if you want to find out if you've ever had a guest, hey, use the search feature. It'll bring up that episode for you. So lots of good stuff over there at FocusOnMetalPod.com. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great Metal Week. Be safe out there. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.